Mom's marijuana helped him beat the odds. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Dr. Dan Shapiro, Director of the Medical Humanities Program and Associate Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at the University of Arizona in Tucson, Arizona, and author of Mom's Marijuana, Life, Love, and Beating the Odds. Dr. Shapiro, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Oh, thanks for having me. Take us back to May 1987, when you were a 20-year-old junior at Vassar College. What happened? The first thing to know is that my mother was a passionate gardener and was one of those people that would torture her neighbors with excessive quantities of, you know, squash or zucchini. You know, neighbors came home to anonymous zucchini breads, cakes, and pies. She was that kind of person. So in 1987, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease, as you know, a lymphoma, a cancer. And I called a friend of mine who was the only person I knew who was a young guy who had also had cancer. And he muttered five gruff words into the phone. He says, chemo's grim man, get weed. (laughs) So I announced to my parents I was going to get marijuana to help with the nausea and vomiting. And at those days, we didn't have great anti-medics. You know, there weren't great anti-nausea drugs. So my mother was vehemently against this. You know, we're not going to have drugs in our house. She berated me about the dangers you know, of illicit substances, et cetera, et cetera. But eventually, she kind of came around. And I'm not sure exactly what happened that made her do that, but she gave me money to buy marijuana to help with the nausea and vomiting associated with chemotherapy. So I bought this small baggie of marijuana, and my mom asked to see it, which felt kind of strange. You know, my mother was a fairly vigilant mother, but I, you know, I figured, well, it's her marijuana. She's the one who bought it. So I gave it to her, and she looked at it, and she saw this tiny little baggie. She looked at it for a while, and then she said, give me the seeds. And then my mother, over the course of the next five months, grew a massive crop of marijuana. More marijuana than I could have smoked in my whole life. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. So this was in her garden? This was in her sacred garden, yes. And for me, the book is less about marijuana and more about what we do for one another when crisis really strikes. And how did that marijuana help you? Well, as it turned out, it really worked. I tried the first round of chemotherapy without the marijuana. And I was on some pretty tough drugs, and it was a real challenge. I threw up quite a bit. The symptoms lasted for a couple days. The worst of it, just for the six hours following ingestion of the chemotherapy. And then I tried the marijuana the next time, and I didn't have any of that. I could tell that I was still a little ill, but it wasn't nearly as intense. Tell us a little bit more about your mom. My mother was a, you know, your kind of passionate, classic suburban mom in some ways. Very, very bright very perceptive. She ruled the roost, kind of a, you know, a Jewish mother. And, you know, she was going to do whatever it took to get her kid through this experience. And then when you got well, what happened to her garden? Well, I should say first that our neighbor showed roses and that there were always people kind of traipsing through her backyard looking at the various beautiful flowers she had there. And apparently a couple times people said, what's that over in the Shapiro's yard? And Donna (laughs) said, oh, those are sunflowers. And she said, no, 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 towering over the sunflowers. And Donna said, that's okra. (laughs) Apparently, since she spoke with such authority, you know, the people in her backyard believed her. But eventually, it got shorn down. In the very end of the book, I write about what happened to the marijuana, so I don't want to ruin it. What are your thoughts about the legalization of medical marijuana? I think for some people, it's a very useful medication. And if you think about the fact that we have much more aggressive drugs, much more addictive drugs in the medical arsenal, it only makes sense that we would also have marijuana. I don't think it is as globally applicable as some people argue that it is. You know, it it works for a few limited populations in a few limited situations. And for those folks, it should be available. 
Dr. Shapiro, your memoirs are so popular. Why do you think they resonate with so many people? I'm not sure. I think some folks really like the humor, you know, and writing about things that are very serious, but with a funny tone, I think is very palatable for folks. And for other folks, I think people who are going through similar circumstances like that things got so serious and yet had a happy ending. Describe your experience with your radiation oncologist. Oh, the first time I went in for radiation, you know, we didn't know what it meant. You know, our family just wasn't all that experienced in medicine. You know, I did not come from a medical family. And so the first time I got radiation and I drove there by myself and left, I went to a local hardware store where I bought lime green spray paint. And uh, I opened my shirt up and I spray painted my chest green. And then I went home and tried to scare the family. (laughs) Have you always been this way? I'm afraid so. I don't think the cancer experience made me any better. (laughs) What else did you do to cope during your treatment for cancer? Well, I did a lot of things. My battle, unfortunately, lasted over five years. And so I did different things at different times. But I tried to maintain as much control over my world as I possibly could. I certainly tried to maintain a sense of humor. And I expected complications. And I tried to stay as socially connected as I possibly could. And also, I continued my schooling. I was diagnosed when I was a junior at Vassar College, which incidentally is a fantastic institution. And then through graduate school, I was diagnosed and relapsed a couple times. But I stayed engaged in that work. While you were ill, how did you balance a good attitude with acknowledging at times that you were going through a horrible experience? I was different, I think, publicly and privately. Privately, I wrote to cope. For me, writing has always been how I find my way through experiences. You know, some people talk to friends. Some people try to, you know, do exercise. For me, writing, it's kind of like emotional radar. It tells me where I've been and where I'm going. And so for me, writing brushed kind of a healing bomb of perspective on my experiences. And then when I was around other people, I tried to stay socially connected. I just tried to be as normal as I possibly could and continue living. What's your best advice to friends and family as to what the best thing to say to someone like you would be? I think living as normally as possible. I mean, I could always tell who knew when I met them because they would stop. They would say, hi. And then there'd be this long pause. And then they'd go, how are you? As if like they'd already heard that I was dead, you know. (laughs) And so that was pretty intense. You know, typically my response was, well, you know, I'm fine until you did that weird thing with your neck and, you know, seeing the whites all around your eyes. Generally, I think trying to keep life as normal as possible and inquiring honestly about what folks want to know. I would tell people if I didn't want to talk about it. So you didn't mind if they sincerely asked how you were feeling going through this? I think it depended on who it was. I mean, there were some folks who ask you questions just because they're kind of morbidly curious. And then there's other folks who really care about you and ask. And so I distinguished the two of them. When I was, I mean, I'm embarrassed about this now a little, but when I was a junior in college, there was one guy who used it to try and pick up girls. You know, I've got this sick friend with cancer. And, uh, you know, he would do that with them. And I pulled out some of my hair and gave it to him. In in a way to kind of dramatically demonstrate to him that it wasn't a game, that this was quite real. And it did sober him up, I have to say. During your illness, you investigated alternative medicine. What was your experience? My experience was pretty mixed, actually. I remember once I went into New York City and went to Chinatown and tried to find Chinese medicine and went into one of these pharmacies where there was, you know, a plethora of, you know, all all these little jars and, you know, with things in them. And I asked the man there what I should do. And I explained my situation, and he looked up at the jars, and they looked back at me, and he said, see a doctor, which was good advice. I didn't do so well with guided imagery or hypnosis or a variety of the other things I tried. But one of the central core beliefs in alternative, complementary, and I think integrative medicine is that 
the patient playing an active role in their care is critically important, and certainly I did do that. And then, you know, obviously marijuana was not a conventional medicine. And what do you mean by playing an active role? I mean, over time, patients begin to have more expertise in some circumstances than their physicians. For example, in managing the side effects of chemotherapy, I figured things out that no one told me that I could then pass on to other patients. For example, if you're throwing up a lot, drink water because it's much easier to throw up water than it is to have dry heaves. Now, no one told me that. It also helps with your teeth care. So over time, I developed a certain amount of expertise and I also asserted myself in medical circumstances. You know, squeaky wheels get oiled in hospitals and clinics and, you know, they're not popularity contests. So I learned to do those types of things, to take control as much as possible of my circumstance. What are your thoughts about whether a conspiracy of silence around death and dying exists in the medical community? So now I teach at a medical school, and we are starting to do a lot better around death and dying curricula. But I have to say, a lot of patients I knew as a patient, who were my friends and colleagues, who some of whom died, often found their physicians withdrawing from them at the end of life. And I have since learned, being on this side of the bed, that it is ubiquitous, that there are a lot of docs who do this. And they justify it to themselves in a variety of ways. One is to say, well, there isn't anything else I can do for this patient, so it's not right for me to bill for when I can't help them. Or, you know, what they need is time alone and that sort of thing. And, you know, I'm so busy, I should really dedicate my time to the patients that I can truly help. But in reality, if you're truly a healer, patients need you In fact, they may need you even more than they do at any other time. So it is critically important to stay engaged and involved with patients towards the end. And one of the ways you can stay engaged is having a willingness to talk about what's really happening. You know, my friends used to joke, you know, while we were waiting to get chemotherapy, that the only way that an oncologist will stop giving you chemotherapy is if you nail yourself into a box, which is a really morbid thing to say. And we were kind of a morbid group, I have to say. But it's true. Too often, oncologists want to do that because they don't want to take away hope. But we have to balance that with patients wanting to have a dignified death. And so, you know, it's tricky. They're in a hard situation. But staying engaged throughout that process is critically important. How have doctors responded to this book, Mom's Marijuana? I think they get a kick out of it. I've been pleased to be invited to a lot of conferences where physicians are gathered, and the response has been uniformly positive. There are a couple that bristle. There are some very direct essays in this book that are about some of the ways we have misacculturated physicians. And there are some who bristle, but most have really embraced it. Dr. Shapiro, thank you so much for joining us to discuss your book, Mom's Marijuana, Life, Love, and Beating the Odds. It's been my pleasure. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions at ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of the ReachMD library. Thank you for listening.